We continue our series in Romans today, and specifically in Romans 9. And by any measure, we are now officially in the deep end of the pool, the deep end of the doctrinal pool. As we see Paul transitioning from Romans 8 and the inseparable love of Christ to Romans 9 and the sovereign grace and mercy of God. And he uses the story of Israel and the heroes of Israel as proof that what he is saying now about the New Testament gospel is something about God that has always been true. That God has always had distinguishing grace. He goes back in the story, as we saw last week, that Abraham fathered Ishmael and Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was the son of promise and Ishmael was not the son of promise. Distinguishing grace. Isaac had two boys. They couldn't be any more the same. They were twins. They had the same grandfather, Abraham, the same father, Isaac, the same mother, uh, Rebecca. And yet, God chose Jacob and God did not choose uh, um, Esau. And so, what we see from this is again that God has. Been, had a distinguishing grace. And we know this, of course, looking around in the world around us. There are some people that are followers of Jesus and there are some people that are not. How do you explain that? Why is that? This is where Romans 9 is going. And specifically, what is the ultimate underlying cause for those who respond to the gospel and those that do not? And therefore, why some are saved and some are not? What explains it? God's sovereign grace. And today we move into a section that theologian James Montgomery Boyce calls the most difficult passage in all of the Bible. And I agree with that, not that I think it's the hardest one to understand what it is saying. I think it is perhaps the most difficult one to receive. And as we teach about these deeper doctrines of salvation, I'd like to lay some ground rules for us as a church, okay? And uh, so ground rule number one is that right doctrine humbles us. If somebody is arrogant, if somebody is um, argumentative, that's a sign they actually don't understand it. Because right doctrine in Romans 9 humbles those who actually have come to understand and grapple with what it's saying. There are some things that good people can disagree on, and there's past things in this passage where good people down through history have uh, disagreed, but we must do so agreeably. Number two, a doctrine about sovereign love should make us love others more. That's one of the ironies of election is that unfortunately some people who have, you know, said that they believe it become very cloistered and, and very sectarian, and no, God's love is a, a, a love to us, and if we understand that electing love, it will force us, compel us, better said, to love other people more. And so you can tell people that actually get it by the way they love other people. And third is the word mystery. And this is so important because in, in this text, and maybe some coming, there are things that are going to sound contradictory, or I'll say paradoxical. And what do you do with things about God and salvation where it sort of like blows our mind and we can't quite come to grips with it? 
I put it under the word mystery. And we should expect in understanding the ways and purposes of an infinite God, even the amount of light that he has exposed to us in Scripture, that there are going to be things that seem to be beyond us. And for Christians, we have to be comfortable in the deep end of the pool with mystery. So leave a lot of room for mystery and let the unfathomable move your heart to worship our infinite God more. So those are the ground rules, all right? And with that, and hopefully in that spirit, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to read our text again. We've heard it once in the service. I'm going to read it again. Here's what it says. And if you have a Bible of all Sundays, this is a good one to be looking at it. What shall we say then? Okay, question. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. May God bless his word to us today. Now, if you just look at that, just an observation here, it's a section about pairs of two. We have two men. We have two Old Testament quotations. We have two conclusions, both begun with the word, so then. So, two men. Who are they? Moses and Pharaoh. These are some big names in the Old Testament, don't you think? Moses and Pharaoh. And so we see Paul, he's continuing now to draw from the Old Testament to verify that what he is saying is nothing new, but simply the God of the Old Testament as well. He continues also with pairs of brothers. We saw that last week. We had Ishmael, we had Isaac, we had Jacob, we had Esau, and here now we have Pharaoh and Moses. Now, these are brothers of a different sort, because if you know the story, Moses uh, was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and presumably would have grown up in the very royal court that the Pharaoh of the Exodus uh, would have grown up in. And if you are to believe the DreamWorks version of the Prince of Egypt, they uh, raced around the Sphinx and had a glorious time, including my personal favorite song, You're Playing with the Big Boys Now, by Martin Short and Steve Martin. That was a digression to help you sort of stay with me today. So, God chose Jacob, not Esau. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Moses, not Pharaoh. Now, what do you suppose people in the first century, those first century folk, as they read or as they heard Paul teaching on salvation and how God makes sinners righteous before God, what do you suppose the first century type people thought about hearing that God chose one and not the other? What do you suppose their response would be? And of course, it's the same as oftentimes we have in our own hearts. We say, that's not fair. That is not fair. And that's exactly the objection 
that Paul brings up and answers. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is this not fair on God's part? Now, how do you suppose Paul knew that when he taught election, there would be people who would say, that's not fair? And the reason, of course, is that this isn't his first rodeo. This isn't his first time bringing this subject up. He's taught it all over Asia Minor. And everywhere he went, he heard the same initial response from people, that's not fair. And that point, by the way, is one of the strongest arguments that what Paul is actually teaching here is election. Right? I mean, he could have stopped and said, now, hey, let me clarify here a second. I'm in no way suggesting that, uh, that Jacob and Esau in the womb there, that this was uh, determinative on God's will. He actually was foreseeing in the future that Jacob would become a follower and father of the people of Israel and Esau would be, you know, a, a ne'er-do-well. And so on that basis, he chose one instead of the other. He could have done that and said, I don't want anybody to get sort of like weirded out on this. I'm not suggesting that. But instead, what does he do? He doubles down. He doubles down. And he says, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Is there injustice on God's part? I don't suppose people in the first century are that different from us, where in the modern Western culture, increasingly so, we view justice and fairness as everybody having the same opportunities, everybody having exactly the same outcomes, everything is the same, we all get a participation trophy, and if not, we cry out, that's not fair. That is not fair. This is the world that I live in with a six-year-old and a four-year-old where any time there's anything, I mean anything, <laughs> where one girl is getting some Cheez-Its and the other is also getting Why? Why is Kira Lee getting, why does she have more Cheez-Its than I do? Right? Last night, I already written this whole sermon and everything. Last night, I'm putting the girls to bed, and one of them has toothpaste that's red. One of them has toothpaste that's blue. The one with the blue toothpaste says to me, why does Kira Lee get to have the red toothpaste? And I thought to myself, a sermon illustration. <laughs> If you're thinking about going into a preaching, teaching ministry, I'd highly recommend having children. It's just constant sermon illustrations all the time. You know what I never hear from my girls? Not one time have I ever heard Lee say, why does Madeline get more peas than me? <laughs> and just from that, you see that our sense of fairness is very subjective. If somebody is advantage over us, that doesn't seem fair. If somebody maybe, you know, is being forced to eat their peas, well, then we're a little more okay with that. What Paul says is this, that the human measure of fairness is not ultimate to God. That God is the ultimate measure 
of what is just and right. We are fallen. We are, he's going to say in a moment, we're clay. He's the potter. And we're going to accuse him of not being just. Can we really accuse him of not being fair? Of being unjust to save Isaac? Or to save Jacob? To save anyone and not save everyone? And Paul's response to that question is a little phrase that he's used prior in Romans. It's the strongest negative the Greek language allows. As somebody said, it borders on profanity. It's not profanity. I don't mean to profane what he's saying here. But it's like, as strong as he could say it, may get it, toy. God forbid. No way is God unjust. May it never be so. And so we can say, well, okay, Paul, you're a human being just like we're a human being. And just because you say it doesn't mean it's true. Can you prove your assertion that Prove that God says he doesn't give mercy to everyone the same. And that's exactly what he does here. Notice again, for he says to Moses, this is God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, when did God say this? So we go back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32. This is uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai. He is with God. The people of Israel have sinned. Moses is, you know, appealing that God not wipe everybody out. And in that appeal, he says, God, show me your glory. And God says, no man can see my glory and live. He says, but I will show you the backside of my glory, and I will declare my name over you. And then he says this phrase, I will have uh, mercy on whom I will have mercy. So this declaration by God means that God reserves unto himself the right to grant mercy, and by this I mean not the mercy of rain and oxygen and friendship and good food and things that everybody as a human being experiences the common grace of God, but the saving grace, the saving mercy of God He has that right to whomever he desires. That's what he says. And Paul's conclusion from this is, so then it, notice what the it is. What it is he talking about? He's talking about salvation. So then salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, The category of justice or fairness is entirely the wrong category for us to think about the activities of God in saving us. The basis of salvation is the will of God and the mercy of God. This is not a justice issue. This is a mercy issue. And we should be forever glad that God is approaching our salvation not on the basis of justice, but on the basis of mercy. Let's go back to that, that womb of Rebekah, and there's little Jacob, and there's little Esau. Which of them deserved to be saved? Class, the answer is neither of them. Now, if you accept that point, you're going to love the rest of this message. It's people that do not accept that basic point that are going to have a hard time. 
with Romans 9. Both Jacob and Esau under the wrath of God. So justice would be that neither of them are saved from their sins, both of them under the wrath of God. If God shows mercy to Jacob and not to Esau, is is an injustice done? Has Esau been wronged? Again, if you begin with the presupposition that Esau deserved the mercy of God, you could say, oh, 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 why didn't he get it? But if you begin with the presupposition, biblical one, that Esau does not deserve the mercy of God, otherwise it wouldn't be mercy. Is there an injustice done? No. What about Jacob? What did Jacob deserve? Same thing all of us deserve, the wrath of God against our sin against him, against God. But God chose to place his grace and mercy on Jacob and paid the price for Jacob's guilt on the cross of Jesus Christ. Is God unjust to grant mercy? And see, this is the point. For all the justice warriors here, in terms of salvation, we don't want justice. We do not want justice. We get justice, we go to hell. What do sinners desperately need? Mercy. Mercy. Now, my journey into these doctrines was very much blessed by a man who died a couple years ago by the name of R.C. Sproul. And I remember when I was a young man, I attended a conference that he was putting on. It was like a Friday, Saturday thing. And he was teaching on, on doctrines like this, and he shared a memorable story that illustrates this that I want to share with you. And he tells the story of when he was a college professor, and he had a class of 250 college freshmen. And so it's the first day of class, and he goes over the syllabus with them, and he, sa- he explains to them there are three term papers The first one is due September 30th. The second one is due October 30th. The third one is due November 30th. Unless there is a medical emergency, you are to walk into class that day with your paper. If you do not, it's an automatic F. Got it? Everybody got it. September 30th comes. And on that day... 225 of the freshmen had the paper with them, and 25 didn't. They pleaded with Professor Sproul, give us a few more days. We're freshmen. We're stupid. This is all new to us. Dr. Sproul relented and said, you have three more days to get your papers in. The second term paper date came, and that day, 200 of the freshmen had the paper done, and 50 of them didn't. He said, I said, you must have it today. They said, we know, we're so sorry, won't you please give us more time? He relented and gave them three more days. The third due date came, November 30th, and this time... 100 freshmen came in with the paper done. 
and 150 of them didn't. They all came into the classroom calm and cool. He said, Professor Sproul said, Johnson, do you have your paper? Don't worry, Prof. I'll get it to you in a few days. Sproul took the grade book and said, Johnson, for you, it's an F. Nicholson, do you have your paper with you today? No, that's an F for you too. Then somebody in the back shouted, that's not fair. Sproul said, Fitzgerald, was that you? Yeah, that's not fair. Sproul said, weren't you late for last month's paper too? Yes. Sproul said, if it's justice you want, it's justice you'll get. That's an F for this month, and I'm changing last month to an F as well. <laughs> he looked around the room and he said, now does anyone else want justice? The minute we think we are entitled to grace, we leave the category of mercy and we demand from God justice. And as sinners, we desperately don't want justice. We desperately need mercy. And Paul says, so then it, salvation, it doesn't depend on human will, choice, or the word here, exertion. It's the word trek. Like you've got a bike, a trek bike, or if you go on a trek, a run. In other words, that, that me sort of journeying on my own and finding my own way, it's not human sweat or exertion. We're not saved by these things. We are saved by God who has mercy. And we should be glad that he has had mercy because if he is fair, we all go to hell. As has been said, if we end up in hell, it's our fault. If we end up in heaven, it's God's fault. Now, if you're tracking with me here, you might be thinking to yourself, but when I became a Christian, it seemed like I was choosing Jesus. That's what it felt like to me. I chose to believe. So how can my salvation be God's choice before it's my choice? And Paul, not his first rodeo, now turns from Moses to his royal brother, Pharaoh. And he says from Scripture, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And now here's Paul's second conclusion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now that's a quote from Exodus 9. It is in the story of, of uh, Israel and Egypt, right before the seventh plague of hail. And within this warning to Pharaoh, God tells Pharaoh why he raised him up to power in the first place. Why are you Pharaoh of Egypt? And all of Pharaoh's attempts to thwart Moses and Israel actually 
are the canvas upon which God chose to display his power and for his name to be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, what's interesting about this is if you've read through Exodus, you know that in the story, there's all, between these plagues, you have the Pharaoh hardening his heart, right? He hardens his heart. Well, actually, it says that a few times. Sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes it says that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Taylor points out, it's fascinating, three times God says, I'm going to harden his heart. Seven times it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And three times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So, which is it? Is, this, is it? is it Pharaoh hardening his heart and God just knowing he's going to do it? Or is it God actually hardening Pharaoh's heart against Israel and not letting his people go? Well, what this doesn't mean is that sometimes it's God and sometimes it's Pharaoh. And here now we are in the realm of some mystery, if I could use that word. Because I don't understand how in the economy of God and the purposes and the will of an infinite God this works. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and was morally responsible to God for doing so. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart, fulfilling his purpose and displaying his power. And that is paradoxical in a way that I don't understand how both of those can be true, but that's what the Bible says. I'll let you think about that. And a reminder, we're in the deep end of the pool. Verse 16, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So here you have now... Paul, we want to talk about Pharaoh, and God wants, or Pharaoh, Paul wants to talk about God. And specifically, he wants to talk about how God is sovereign over the giving of mercy and the hardening of hearts. Now, I know some of you, you want to talk now about, you want to talk back about that hardening and how did Pharaoh's heart, hardened heart, bring God glory. That's next week, okay? That is next week. That's all about him message, and I've been planning that for months next week's message. So let's stay on Paul's point now. How is this fair? Now I need you to hang with me now, okay? Please hang with me because I'm going to go on a tangent. Most pastors go on rabbit trails and they don't tell you. I'm just telling you right now I'm going on one, okay? So if you hang with me, I think you're going to be helped in understanding this question. Because I want to talk with you about angels and demons and how God treated them. There is this other category of created beings, the angelic realm. Okay? You're probably, if you've been a Christian very long, you've, you know about the angelic realm. You have created angels, and in the story of the angelic realm, you have a rebellion. They have their own Garden of Eden moment. And that rebellion is led by an angel named Lucifer. We know him better as Satan. Lucifer was the most beautiful, the most powerful of all the angels. Only God was more than Lucifer. And in the story, Lucifer's heart filled with pride. And uh, like Cinderella's nasty stepmother, 
who looked in the mirror and said, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Lucifer could not stand anybody being fairer than him, even God. And Lucifer led a rebellion. We get the idea of myriads upon myriads, however, much, however many that is, thousands, maybe millions of angels followed Lucifer in his rebellion. We call them demons now. Led by Lucifer in this rebellion. And the result is that God cast those rebellious angels, Satan included, out of heaven. Where did they go? And this is now where I think maybe you're about to learn something. Second Peter 2 tells us this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. What? Yeah. What did God do? God cast some into this earth, Satan for sure, who then turned and led Adam and Eve in their rebellion. But some, we could say many, he sent right to hell. Right now, there are demons in hell awaiting a final judgment. Instant justice. How do we feel about that? Okay? How do, how do we feel about, about God doing that with them? Here's what I say. Good riddance. They got what they deserved. This place is better without them. And I'm going to guess right now, nobody in this room has lost any sleep about the fairness issue in how God treated the rebellious demons, right? Anybody lose sleep about that last night? Maybe the thunder, yes, but not, not the demons in hell. We rather like God doing that to them. They're getting what they deserve. They're getting their comeuppance. Their chickens have come home to roost. They got fair. So here's the question. Why did God give rebellious angels instant justice in hell and we got Jesus sent to us with the offer of salvation for all who trust and believe in him? Does that seem fair to anybody? Perhaps we should petition God and say, God, we demand fairness with the demons. We want fair. They sinned, we sinned. It's got to be the same. And if God answered that prayer, we all go to hell instantly. We don't want to be treated like the demons, do we? Even though our sin is the same as theirs against our Creator. In fact, if we could choose an aspect of God's character that God chose to highlight, to make praiseworthy, to reveal, if we could choose the character of God that we want Him to glorify Himself in treating us, which one might we choose? Well, how many say the wrath of God? I agree with you. I would not raise my hand on that. I don't want God to glorify his wrath with Steve DeWitt. 
No. How many people would maybe say, well, how about his justice? Again, I say no, no, no. How about his holiness? Again, no. No, I don't want his holiness glorified through my eternal destiny. And from the back, a small voice says, what about mercy? What about mercy? How does that sound? If God would choose sovereignly to unveil the glory of his mercy in the way that he treats sinful human beings. And how might God go about doing that? Again, a sinner suggests, well, what if rather than giving us what we deserve, God gave us what we don't deserve? And another sinner says, what if God chose to not hold us guilty, but sovereignly chose to pardon us? And a third says, if God wants to glorify his mercy in us, not only would we not go to hell forever, but somehow he would make it possible that we go to heaven forever. And all the sinners would gasp, how could that ever happen? And onto the stage walks Jesus Christ. Scars in his hands, scars in his feet. His cross, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the full satisfaction of God's wrath against our guilt, the Savior for all who trust in him. Jesus is the answer to the paradox of how God can glorify his wrath and save sinners by mercy. And so we praise God that he didn't treat us like the demons, or by some human measure of fair, but has chosen to display the astonishing depth and breadth of his mercy in we who are saved. In the words of John Stott, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. So where does this leave us? Are we entitled? Our noses in the air? proud? No, it humbles us because we realize this precious gift we have, there is nothing in us that deserves it. No, we look at Pharaoh's hard heart and we say, there but by the grace of God go I. Amen.